We are venturing into, further venturing into this series that we're calling Can You Drink the Cup, or Drinking the Cup, rather. Uh, now, we started this series last week, and I, I want to say uh, that I'm, I'm so excited about what God is doing here at North Haven. Now, obviously, the snow has gotten in the way today, but we, we are seeing, uh, we're seeing people come and experience this place, and we're seeing people uh, understand their specific calling in their life and, and being mobilized to go where God is leading them. And I think things are happening here in such a way that maybe it hasn't in some time, and I'm so blessed to be a part of that. And so uh, thank you for allowing me the journey of being able to walk with you and, and uh, experience uh, this life with the Lord together. Um, but as we, as we go forward into this message, I, I kind of want to lay a foundation, kind of give us a little maybe head start because it's tied into what we talked about last week. So drinking the cup, what in the world does that mean? Well, we looked specifically at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, where we, we saw an interchange between Jesus and James and John. James and John being two of Jesus' disciples. They were referred to as the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee being their, their dad. And in this particular um, moment in Scripture, their, their mom comes into the picture. We talked about how embarrassing that can be, right? When mom comes in and, and tries to advocate for for their kids. And, and here mom is basically saying to Jesus, hey, you, can you have James and John, my two beautiful children, sit on your left and your right? And Jesus basically says, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. And then he looks specifically at James and John and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? And we looked at how they, they without hesitation, said, yes, but they had no idea what they were saying yes to. So we talked about how the cup oftentimes is symbolic of two pendulum swings, either victory, so like the, the Stanley Cup, you know, the, the trophy, uh, you know, being able to accomplish something, or death, you know, like for instance, uh, Socrates, when he drank a cup of poison uh, because he was being uh, sentenced to death for tainting the the minds of the youth of, in Athens. And, and, but yet we didn't, we didn't look at either victory or death, but understand rather the cup that Jesus is talking about isn't a cup of victory or death, it's a cup of life. It's a cup of life. And how life oftentimes is filled with sorrow. It's filled with sorrow. So that's kind of the, the framework that we're going into that's helping us you know launch into today's message which is about holding the cup and then next week uh pastor don our associate pastor is going to be talking about lifting the cup i'll be here uh, but but he's going to i can't think of anybody better to be able to uh, share the message of lifting the cup doing life with other people and then also the last week of the series i'll be talking about then drinking the cup drinking it to the full. But before we venture into holding the cup, I have a really important question to ask of you. Has anybody here eaten a warhead? Yeah? Really? Okay. All right. 
Now, if you haven't ventured into this horrendous act, a warhead is, is this sour candy. Now, this is like a thing, right? For those of you who haven't had a warhead or Sour Patch Kids, right, there are people that actually, a lot of kids, really, who like to eat really sour things that are horrendous for a period of time, but then sweet after a little while. And that's what like this warhead is. You put it in your mouth and you suffer, you labor through the sourness of that taste until you can get to the, the sweetness. Now, that's a lot like our lives. It's a lot like our lives. See, at various times in our lives, we are, we are given a cup that is full of sorrow. And there's sourness there. There's, there's a bitterness to that. And here's the question then we want to ask today. Is knowing that oftentimes our cup is filled with sorrow, are we willing, are we courageous enough to hold on to that cup long enough to experience the joy in the midst of the sorrow? To experience the sweetness in the midst of of the sorrow. But we need to define some things first because I'm going to be using two words time and again over the course of this message that we need to kind of tackle before we can really venture into the meat of this message. And that is sorrow and joy. Sorrow and joy. These are two words that we apply to various things in our lives, but what do, what do these things actually mean? So first, what is sorrow? Well, I like, I like just going to the dictionary sometimes, right? And so if we go to the dictionary and we look up the word sorrow, this is what we'll see in Webster's Dictionary specifically. It says, The uneasiness or pain of mind which is produced by the loss of any good, real or supposed, or by disappointment in the expectation of good, or grief at having suffered or occasioned some kind of evil, or regret, unhappiness, sadness. Right? So that, that that's really kind of encompasses sorrow that we face in our lives. But this is the reality. Regardless of how we define it, whether or not we like it, sorrow cannot be avoided this side of eternity. It can't be avoided this side of of eternity. It is something that we all will experience at some point in our lives, and maybe some of you even this morning are holding a cup full of sorrow. Now we could try in vain, we could try in vain to say things like in this year, 2020, I, uh, that's going to be the year that I, I get my life together and I'm not going to experience any more sorrow, Right? Or we could say in vain something like, when I get more mature, I won't experience the valley anymore. The valley being uh, the opposite of the mountain. The mountaintop when everything seems to be going well, and the valley when everything seems to not be going well. Or we could say in vain, as I get older, my emotional struggles will cease. Is that true? No. No. Sorrows are a natural part of life. And they're, they're a result of a world that, is, that has been infiltrated by sin. But here's the important point. 
Being sorrowful is not sinful. Being sorrowful is not sin. Nor is it something, nor is it something that should be avoided. And to suggest that it's either sinful or it's something to be avoided would then, to, would then suggest that Jesus was wrong in experiencing sorrow himself. Because he certainly did. And we saw that last week. And we'll look at this passage again in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 39. We see Jesus moments before he was about to be betrayed um, and, and then sentenced to death and, and experienced death on a cross. Moments before this, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what we see in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his, his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He then took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, those two that we had talked about just a second ago, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, these three disciples, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. So last week, we, we talked about how it's easy to think about going with Jesus into the joy of his resurrection. That, that's super easy to think about. Of course, we would say yes to that. But are we willing to also venture with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and to fall on our face? That question becomes much harder. See, Jesus knows very well this, this, this cup of sorrow. See, Jesus understands the, the physical and the mental and the emotional and the spiritual sorrow that we experience. Those times of physical sorrow in our lives where we're succumbed by, by illness, by pain, by limitations. He understands the, the mental sorrow in our lives, the depression, anxiety. And he understands the emotional sorrow in our lives when we feel loneliness and despair, betrayal. And he understands the spiritual sorrow. And this cup that is full of hunger and persecution, isolation, betrayal, and loneliness, He held in His hands. He Himself held the cup of sorrow just as we often, often do. So then if, if we have a better understanding as to what sorrow is, we, we then need to ask the question, what is joy? What is this word joy that we oftentimes throw around and we apply to different you know, things in our lives? Well, before we can talk about what joy is, we need to first understand the distinction between biblical joy and the world's joy. Biblical joy and the world's joy. 
Now, world's, the world's joy could be defined as distraction or amusement. You know, the things that, that, that last for a moment. It, it, like a Twinkie, right? You eat a Twinkie for 10 seconds and it's wonderful, and then after you're done, you're like, what in the world did I just do? Right? That's the world's joy. But biblical joy is something completely different. It's not distraction. It's not amusement. I'll give you a couple of definitions to consider. So John Piper, he defines joy as a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Or maybe consider this definition from Steve Byers where he says, the deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of a person who knows all is well between himself or herself and the Lord. There's a stark difference between the world's joy, distraction, amusement, and then the beauty and sweetness of the joy of the Lord. See, when you're on the mountaintop, it's really easy to experience this kind of joy. That doesn't come hard. But we're not talking about being on the mountain today, are we? We're talking about being in the valley. And that's not so easy then, is it? See, that sourness of the sorrow in our lives, just like a warhead, when you put a warhead in your mouth or a Sour Patch Kid, you, you, your gut is wanting to tell you, chew that down as fast as you can, get it down, just get it over with, or spit it out. Avoid it at all costs. And that's how we often approach sorrow in our lives. We hold this cup of sorrow and the sourness and the bitterness is something that would compel us to either say, I'm going to gulp this down as fast as I can, just get it over with, or I'm going to toss it away and avoid it. But just as Jesus showed us that he, he held that cup. He held that cup long enough to experience the joy. And then what did he do? He drank it down to its full. You see, contrary to popular opinion, sorrow and joy are not opposites. Rather, they are connected. They are intertwined with one another. They have an intimate relationship with each other. Sorrow and joy. Consider, consider these verses, for instance, in Scripture. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, I'm okay, Siri. Thank you. Thank you, I will. What a world we live in, right? My goodness gracious. All right, so, uh, okay. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. This is what it says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at that, that connected relationship between joy and sorrow. The joy that was set before him, the joy of knowing 
the result of his sacrifice, and then rising from the dead, the fact that we would then be able to have life everlasting. So that joy of the Lord set before him had a relationship with the sorrow of knowing what the price was. They were connected. They had relationship with each other. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. There's a relationship. There's a connection there. But let me make something very clear. Because uh, there is something that, I, that if I don't say this, you may assume that it's something that I'm trying to get across I am not suggesting that the only way for us to experience biblical joy is to suffer or is to have sorrow. That's not what I'm saying because we certainly can and do experience biblical joy without sorrow, without suffering. But here's the important point. Sorrow in our lives should always lead to joy. Sorrow should always lead to the joy of the Lord. See the difference? We can experience the joy of the Lord without going through sorrow, but when we do experience sorrow, it should always lead to joy. And I want to help us understand that connectedness that sorrow and joy have with each other. And I want, I want to encourage you and myself to venture in courageously into that sorrow long enough to be able to experience the, the joy. So like, like always, let's dive into some Scripture and, and really look into what the Word of God has to say about this. And we're going to look specifically at John chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John 16. We're going to look at a number of verses in, in that chapter. Uh, there's Bibles in front of you. It'll be on the screen uh, so you can totally cheat like I do. But Jesus here in this instance, he's with his disciples and he's, he's talking with them about a whole number of things. He's, he's in the upper room and again, this is right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and falls on his face. It's right before he's about to be betrayed. It's right before he's arrested and then tried and then sacrificed on the cross. So he's with his disciples and he's He's talking, he's, he's saying some really disturbing things. You know, a lot of times, it's difficult for us to process Scripture because we have the benefit of hindsight. That can be to our benefit a lot of times, but there are other times where it actually kind of keeps us from understanding the context and the moment in which we're reading. And so, in this moment, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they have no idea what he's saying. They can't even fathom or understand. I mean, he's talking about how one of them is going to betray him. And then he's, he's, he's saying, too, that, that one of his disciples, one of the three that actually goes into the garden and, and is, is asked by Jesus to stay with him, he's saying that that, that guy, Peter, is going gonna, is gonna to deny me. And this is the last time before his crucifixion that Jesus has to speak into his disciples and he can tell that they're afraid, he can tell that they're confused, and he can tell that they're anxious. And in the midst of all this, Jesus shares these words, starting with verse 16. So Jesus went on to say, In a little while, while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. 
And at this point, some of his disciples, they said to one another, what in the world is he talking about? When he says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand any of this. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me, see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And then he says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Holy cow. I mean, he, he's, he's basically setting the stage. When, when I am being tried and crucified, the world's going to be rejoicing, but you will weep and mourn. They had no expectation of this. We talked about this last week. The disciples were promised a Messiah from the Old Testament, and their interpretation, or rather their hope or expectation, was that this Messiah would come and overthrow that Roman oppressive government, would actually sit on an earthly throne. They had no idea, no inclination that Jesus came to die. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then this is the key part in verse 21. It says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So here Jesus is revealing this connected relationship, this intimate relationship between sorrow and joy, and he's using the analogy of giving birth. Of giving birth. I have two amazing kids. My daughter Callie, she's 13. My son Aiden is 9. And obviously they were both born. Alright? And they were very different births. My daughter, uh, when she was born, it was a very, you know, the quintessential birth story, right? You know, my, water, my, my wife's water broke. We rushed her to the hospital. You know, she, she gave birth. That, you know, the thing that you would see in a TV show or in a movie. And my son, I didn't even know this was possible, but my son's was completely different. A week before the birth, we went to the, the doctor, her doctor, and after the appointment, the doctor said, you know, you could give birth today. And Sarah and I looked at each other like, Okay, you know, so we walked across the street and we like checked into a hotel. It was crazy. And then a few hours later we had a kid. You know, that, it was so completely different. And I remember, I remember when my son was born, and this is a true story. I am not making this up. My wife was experiencing contractions and a lot of pain, right? 
And she kept telling the nurses about this pain that she was experiencing and that the contractions were getting worse. And they would come in and they would look at that monitor that monitors the, the contractions, and it, it didn't show that. And so they would say, well, you're still not ready. You're still not ready. And my wife, she, she's like, well, I don't know what to, what's going on. I don't know what to tell them. And after, what, a couple hours of this, Sarah, they come in and they find out that the monitor is actually upside down. I'm totally serious. And then they're like, oh, okay, yes, all right, you're, you're ready. You're ready. And I remember when my, when my daughter was born, and we did the classes right prior to that, and, and there was this, there's this thing, this technique that they told us to do where I had to get, I had to get down on all fours, and my wife would sit on my back, and it would like relieve pain or pressure. I have no idea. You know, when you're in that moment and your wife tells you get down on the ground, you just do it, right? So I'm, I'm, on my, I'm on all four. She's sitting on me, right? And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to get through this? Of course, I did not say that out loud, right? <laughs> I'm not an idiot. But when my wife gave birth to our kids, I never heard her say after that. Never heard her say, these words never came out of her mouth, it didn't hurt a bit. Or I didn't feel a thing. Or it was over before I knew it. Those words never came out of my wife's mouth. Subsequently, I never dreamed of of leaning over her and patting her head after those births and saying, oh, that wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) No way. But even though my wife made it quite clear that she was in pain and she definitely felt it, and it probably seemed like it was going to last forever, I also have never heard her say after the fact that it wasn't worth it. I never have heard her say that if this is, if this is all that I was going to get, I wouldn't have bothered in the first place. No way. No way. See, the point here is, is that joy experienced in the midst of pain is what gives sorrow the perspective it needs. That joy experienced in the midst of pain is what gives sorrow the perspective it needs and and isn't that what we really want in the midst of our sorrow some perspective the joy of the lord is what gives us that perspective it's what gives us the strength that we need in the midst of our sorrow in nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 it says the joy of the lord is your strength so in the midst of our sorrow if we're doing the math We hold that cup, and instead of gulping it down because the sorrow is so much, or it's uncomfortable, or it's sour, or or bitter, or instead of throwing it away, what what the Bible is telling us is that we instead, we need to hold on to that cup long enough to experience the joy of the Lord, and then that is when we receive strength in the midst of our sorrow, because of the joy that is sweet and beautiful and precious. How could Jesus hold that cup of sorrow? 
How could he hold that cup of sorrow knowing that the cross was waiting for him? He held it because he was able to see the joy of the resurrection and the life that you and I would have with him if we chose to believe. See, he trusted, Jesus trusted beyond betrayal. He surrendered beyond despair. And he loved beyond all his fears. And that's what he's asking you and I to do, to trust him. To surrender ourselves and to love courageously. Trust, surrender, love. The Bible refers to Jesus as the man of sorrows, but I would argue that Jesus is also the man of joys. He is at, as, at once the man of sorrows and the man of joys. He is the embodiment of this connection, this relationship between sorrow and joy. In predicting his death in John chapter 12, verse 32, it, sa- he, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here he's referring to two things. Lifted up on the cross, the sorrow, but then lifted up in resurrection and life, the joy. Sorrow and joy connected, embodied in the perfect Son of God. The reality of agony and the beauty of ecstasy. See, sorrow is not despair. Despair is hanging, hanging on the side of a cliff without, without any hand reaching down to lift you up. That is despair. Sorrow is hanging from a cliff and seeing the hand of God reaching down to grab onto yours. Sorrow is the presence of hope. Hope realized through the joy of the Lord that gives us strength. See, we cannot cannot separate the cup of sorrow from the cup of joy because it is the cup of life. Sorrow fills our cup. And in the midst of that sorrow, as we hold it, as we reflect on it, as we trust and surrender and love courageously, the joy of the Lord is revealed. And that is what gives us strength in the midst of our sorrow. And experiencing that joy is like walking into a dark cave and finding a beautiful gem embedded in its walls. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your unrelenting pursuit of a people that are lost in sin, that are separated from a holy and perfect God. Your pursuit manifested 
in your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice, not something done to Him, but something He willingly stepped into. Holding His cup, seeing the joy of the resurrection, the joy of a relationship eternally with us. And then drinking it to its full. Thank You. Thank You for pursuing us. We pray, Father, that the truth of Your love, Your unrelenting love, would penetrate our hearts and cause us, as we hang off the edge of that cliff, to look up and to see Your faithful hand grasp onto ours. I pray this in Your name. Amen.